Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Feel very best of health. A stroke is a very serious condition, and for those that survive it, changes their lives in an instance. It's where the blood supply to part of the brain is cut off. Common signs to be aware of include your face dropping on one side, not being able to lift your arms, and slurred speech. If this happens, you need to act fast and be treated in hospital as soon as possible. Age is the most important factor for stroke. Whilst it's more likely to occur after the age of 55, as we're reminded by the recent news that rapper Snoop Dogg's daughter had a stroke at the age of 24, younger people are affected too. Austin Willett, CEO of the charity Different Strokes, highlights the percentage of stroke patients that are under the age of 50. Uh, my estimate would be though probably 10 to 15 percent which might not sound of that large a figure until you can factor in that over a hundred thousand people in the uk have a stroke every year so you're looking at up to about fifteen thousand people so it's a really high number and there are children too approximately 400 children a year have a stroke that's under 18s but the important thing here is a stroke can happen to anyone of any age we've supported someone who's had a stroke age two had a stroke age three had a stroke age six i mean our support for them has been a few years later but they were the ages that they were when they had a stroke you can have a stroke in the womb before you're born you can have a stroke at any age there's this myth that it's something that only happens to the elderly and that's absolutely not true What are the factors that increase the chances of having a stroke? A lot of the risk factors are based around unhealthy lifestyle. And the real big danger with stroke is uncontrolled high blood pressure, leading a healthy lifestyle, not drinking too much, not taking illegal drugs, not smoking, making sure you exercise, having a healthy diet. All the usual things will, to an extent, reduce your chances of having a stroke. Having said that, A significant number of people, particularly those of a younger age, have a stroke not due to lifestyle issues, but to do with an undiagnosed medical condition. An example of that may be a PFO, which is a hole in the heart, for example. A number of people we've supported have had their stroke due to a PFO. They've had no idea whatsoever they've had that condition until they have their stroke. The charity you lead, Different Strokes, is run by younger stroke survivors, providing support and promoting independent stroke recovery. What are the challenges and issues younger stroke survivors face? If you had 50 stroke survivors in a room, the chances are they've been impacted in 50 different ways. No two stroke survivors have conditions which are exactly the same. Probably around 70% of stroke survivors have fatigue to an extent. Alongside all the physical disabilities you may be faced with, the cognitive challenges that you may be faced with, there are particular things for for younger stroke survivors, particular challenges which may not be faced by people of an older age. So for example, by definition, if you have a stroke at an older age, Yes, that will still have a life-changing impact and can be very difficult for you and your family. But the chances are that you're not going to have to worry about your ability to work, ability to support your family if you're retired. If you have a stroke in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, the chances are, you know, issues such as challenges of parenting young children or teenagers, for example, which is difficult enough at the best of times. But if you throw in the fact that you may be suffering from significant fatigue as well, that becomes really, really challenging. And arguably, the biggest thing, though, for younger stroke survivors is the thought that 
I'm the only person of my age that this has happened to, because the chances are, if you have a stroke at a younger age, you never would have thought of a stroke. I mean, why would you? Why would you consider that? And particularly when there's this idea that stroke only happens to the elderly. And suddenly you're faced in this situation that you've never given any thought to. And it's almost an understandable reaction to think this hasn't happened to anyone my age before. And and this is where peer support is so crucial. The ability and the opportunity to be able to engage with other younger stroke survivors and to share experiences with them, to know that you're not alone. And that's fundamentally what we do. There's various services that we provide. We have about 30 local groups up and down the country where people can meet and most of them undertake exercise as well. We can provide support calls from stroke survivors in our office as well. And then we have a lot of stuff online. The most significant thing we've got is our online support group that's got about 7,500 members and is a private group only for stroke survivors and close family members. And this is a fantastic forum where people are able to support each other, seek advice from each other, celebrate successes, have a bit of a rant if they need to do that as well. Everything that we do is based around this concept of peer support and survivors supporting survivors and putting people in touch with each other who've been through similar experiences. Reflecting on your six years working with young stroke survivors, what needs to change to help them further? I don't know if this comes into the category of changing things or not, but if you ask me one of my wishes, it would be to never again hear the expression, I was told I was too young to have a stroke. We hear this far too often. Far too many people in their 20s, 30s, 40s are hearing this and hearing this sometimes from healthcare professionals as well who may be ignorant, obviously non-stroke specialists. I would like to see greater rehabilitation for stroke survivors post-stroke for that to last for a longer period as well because again, something that is fed back to us from stroke survivors is that they will likely have an initial period of rehabilitation but then when that ends through statutory services it's a little bit like falling off cliff. And I would like to see much, much greater resources within the NHS in terms of stroke. There is a real workforce crisis within the NHS and within stroke at the moment. I think approximately half of the stroke units in the country have a vacancy for at least one consultant. It is seriously understaffed. That's something that's going to take many, many years to turn around. The contacts I know within the stroke world in the NHS are absolutely fantastic and are incredibly committed to their role and are very, very genuine about wanting to work with different strokes, wanting to work with Stroke Association and other support organisations and to hear the voice of lived experience in the design of their services as well. That's something that we're very lucky that that happens in the stroke world. But then they need more resource. We need more people working within stroke. My grateful thanks to Austin Willett. To find out more and connect through to different strokes, log onto our website, wordonhealth.com. That's wordonhealth.com. Word on Health. Feel very best of health. When someone currently sat at this microphone set up the first UK tinnitus awareness initiative back in 2004, I was told that for people that live with the constant whistling, buzzing or ringing noises in their head associated with tinnitus, it's the very last thing they want to be made aware of. But what was clear then, and even clearer today, is those of us that don't have tinnitus need to give greater consideration towards the wider impact the condition has, as highlighted by new patient research from the charity Tinnitus UK. Their spokesperson is Nick Ray. 
one in seven adults live with tinnitus in the UK and for one in six of those it impacts their quality of life. What these new findings have shown, more than eight out of ten of our respondents experienced low mood or anxiety in the last year, with seven out of ten people feeling hopeless or helpless. Almost nine out of ten were having sleep disturbances. I think one of the most alarming figures was that over one in five of the people living with tinnitus had had thoughts of suicide or harming themselves in the last year. And that number is substantially more than when we've asked the question previously. This survey is a snapshot view of patient experiences, but I understand that's reflected in the calls your helpline team are getting via phone or web-based conversations. We are finding that more people are needing emotional support than just pure facts and figures about tinnitus and the management techniques that they can use. We are trained in how to handle this kind of distressing call, as well as obviously the expertise in tinnitus. We're here as somebody that they can turn to because people are finding it difficult to access support, particularly mental health support, for example, for cognitive behavioural therapy, which is a well-known, well-respected, proven to be effective for tinnitus as well as mental health issues. GPs are only able to offer 1 in 20 a referral for CBT. It's commonly known that we don't have enough mental health therapists to meet the need of patients. In recent times, online cognitive behavioural therapy applications have proved to be very useful towards bridging the gap. Is an online tinnitus-orientated CBT setup something perhaps that Tinnitus UK might get involved in developing? We're sort of lacking, I guess, in resources for that, but there are people who are developing that. People might have seen stories in the press about Mindia, who have developed an app which, as well as having a, a tinnitus chatbot, has elements of CBT via its app. There's also people like Alfred Berkus at Anglia Ruskin University. They're developing internet-based CBT interventions for tinnitus because people are aware that there's this gap and there's this need for accessible and timely interventions and support for mental health. Finally, Nick, a question the vast majority of people whose lives are blighted by tinnitus want to know is, are we any closer to finding a cure? There's new innovations in devices, there's new interventions in CBT. I think most people would want a pill for tinnitus or an injection for tinnitus. That's still a long way off. There's still a lot of work to be done. We're knowing more now, though, about the mechanisms and people are looking at what turns the onset of tinnitus, which might be transient in many people, what turns it into a chronic condition and can we intervene at that point? But what is happening is that there's better management techniques and greater understanding of using them all together, but sometimes it's actually accessing those. Like I say, CBT is known to work really well for people with tinnitus, but people are struggling to access it. My grateful thanks to Nick Ray. To find out more and to connect through to Tinnitus UK, visit our website, wordonhealth.com. That's wordonhealth.com. Keeping you in touch with the health and lifestyle issues that matter. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Scabies is a highly contagious condition caused by mites that results in an itchy rash. 
It's spread through close skin contact and it should be treated quickly to stop it spreading. According to a report by the Guardian newspaper and the British Association of Dermatologists, scabies cases are surging, posing, it's claimed, a potential major public health threat. Dr Tess McPherson is from the British Association of Dermatologists. There are various reasons, I think, that are contributing to this at the moment. There are more cases in various groups of people, particularly young people, anyone that lives in crowded accommodation. There's a general lack of public knowledge about the condition, so that means that people don't know they've got scabies. They don't even consider it as a potential diagnosis, and that can also be among health workers and pharmacists as well, so people are not being diagnosed maybe appropriately. There's been quite a lot of access issues with some of the most commonly used treatments. That includes topical treatments, and also there's a tablet for particular forms of scabies which has also been more difficult to get for certain populations and even if you get the treatments then people don't always use them effectively and correctly if you don't leave them in contact with your skin for long enough if you don't reapply them after you've washed these are all things why there can be treatment failure the last thing which we're not really sure about is whether there might be some tolerance to treatments for some of the mites so treatments not being as effective as they previously have been to eliminate mites in some people. There are a number of myths and misunderstandings about scabies. Importantly, anyone can get it. It's not something that's confined to particular people or being dirty or living a bad life. It's just something which is very contagious and it's been with humans since records began. The really important thing is with scabies is you have to treat not just yourself to anyone that you have that potentially be in skin-to-skin contact with you. And that can be quite a lot of people. So if they're not all treated, then it's very easy to get reinfested. Even if you treat yourself, if people around you are not treating, then the scabies continues to transmit between groups. Given the lack of understanding of how scabies may manifest itself, what should we be looking out for? Any itchy rash, essentially, can be scabies. Particularly itchy at night when you get warm. The skin rash can be quite non-specific. Particular features of scabies are little spots in warm areas in between the fingers and the genitals in between the toes then that's something to consider but if you or others around you have an itchy rash then you should definitely consider whether you might have scabies or not if we suspect an outbreak of scabies should we approach our pharmacist or the gp certainly if you know that you've been in contact with scabies you have an itchy rash you have any concerns then you can go to pharmacies. The important things we've been trying to educate people on is actually the product information. We think treatment needs to be applied for at least 12 hours. Some of the treatments, even if you get them, are not being applied correctly, not being applied to all of the skin that needs to be applied. And as we've mentioned, not treating contacts appropriately. Certainly, itch can continue for a week or two after treatment. If things are persisting, then that's probably a time to get some help from a health professional. My grateful thanks to Dr Tess McPherson for more information and to link through to the British Association Association of Dermatologists, visit our website, wordonhealth.com. That's wordonhealth.com. Word on Health. Feel very best of health. Across the UK, there are over 30,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, or heart attacks as they're otherwise known, that take place each year. But sadly, less than 1 in 10 people survive. Acting fast when faced with what's been termed the ultimate medical emergency is crucial. To enable us to do so, as part of Heart Month, the British Heart Foundation is offering free CPR training that, armed with a smartphone or tablet, we can learn in just 15 minutes. Lizzie Moscadini is the British Heart 
Foundation's Programme Manager for Health Partnerships and Community Resuscitation. CPR stands for Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation and is a life-saving skill that everyone should learn because it could be the difference between life or death. It's something that we should administer when someone goes into cardiac arrest. It helps the body continue to pump blood around the body to give people the best possible chance of survival. Lizzie, how many people across the UK don't know CPR skills? Previous surveys have shown us that around a third of adults have never undertaken any form of CPR training and we know that bystander intervention is really key to helping the chain of survival so it's really important that more people do learn how to do CPR. We know in other countries where CPR is taught from a young age the survival rates are better than they are here so we want to make sure that everyone in the UK has the opportunity to learn these skills because it could make a difference in the ultimate medical emergency. Talk me through what you're offering via the British Heart Foundation website. Reviver is our free innovative online training tool that we're encouraging everyone to use. It's been created to improve the nation's CPR and defibrillation skills. The training's really quick, it's really easy. All you need is a smartphone and a cushion. And in 15 minutes, the training tool will take you through how to recognise a cardiac arrest. It will give you feedback on chest compressions so you can practise those live. And then it also outlines the correct steps to take for using a defibrillator. So Reviver can really help give anyone the confidence to step in and help save a life. My grateful thanks to Lizzie Muscadini. To connect through to the free online CPR training that the British Heart Foundation are offering, which I actively encourage you to do, log on to our wordonhealth.com website. That's wordonhealth.com. Word on Health. Feel very best of health. Across the UK, 1.2 million people are affected by COPD, including me. COPD exacerbations account for one in eight UK hospital admissions. It's thought that malnutrition affects one in three inpatients and one in five outpatients with COPD. This can develop gradually over several years or quickly with exacerbations. Low BMI and low muscle mass contribute to poorer outcomes. Appropriate nutrition, it's claimed, can make a difference. Consultant dietitian Han Holdaway is from the Malnutrition Pathway. We know it can affect the frequency of exacerbations. We know that if they're well-nourished, they're less likely to go into hospital. And if they're well-nourished and go into hospital, they're more likely to get home quicker than if they were undernourished. As COPD progresses, then symptoms such as breathlessness can become worse. And we know that breathlessness in particular can really impact on the enjoyment of food and eating and drinking. Symptoms like dry mouth that might be associated with the use of oxygen therapy can also make eating and drinking difficult. Poor nutrition, so not being able to eat and drink enough, can affect how well you can participate in everyday activities because it can affect your overall strength and well-being. And how can someone with COPD identify that they are malnourished? Monitoring weight and looking out for unplanned weight loss is probably the sort of two areas I would say that individuals with COPD should be on the lookout for. And equally for those who are caring for individuals with COPD is to know if there is any weight loss. And if you haven't got a set of scales at home and it's not easy to weigh yourself, then keeping an eye on how well your clothes fit or how your jewellery is fitting can be an indicator of the unplanned weight loss. 
I understand you've recently chaired a panel of experts to update guidance for clinicians and patients on nutrition for COPD patients that's been endorsed by professional and patient organisations. What do you cover? The managing malnutrition in COPD guidance was established to try and help healthcare professionals provide good nutritional advice at the earliest opportunity so that nutrition is part of that holistic assessment. Many healthcare professionals, including doctors, don't receive nutrition training within their careers. So there's a straightforward step-by-step guide for the healthcare professionals to follow so they can implement that in practice. When patients are coming in for review, they can be checking their weight and their body mass index and looking out for problems that might be interfering with intake. But what's also key within the resources is the patient materials. Self-management is becoming more and more crucial. The more you can do to help yourself by keeping a check on your weight, by thinking about the food on your plate, is it a balance? meal. If it's not a balanced meal, then look at the resources because they tell you how you can make your meal balanced, how you might need to increase your protein through selecting certain foods. Eating more protein can actually help with your muscle mass, your strength of your muscles, which in turn help keep your muscles strong, not only for physical activity, but also for breathing and also for fighting off infections so you don't get an exacerbation. There are specific resources and top tips for patients and their carers about how you can adjust your diet to make up for any dietary deficit that may be arising because of that poor appetite or the inability to eat and drink as normal. My grateful thanks to Anne Holdaway. To find out more and link through to the Malnutrition Pathway to access the guidance on COPD and nutrition, visit our website, wordonhealth.com. That's wordonhealth.com. Keeping you in touch with the health and lifestyle issues that matter. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington.